Hello, and welcome to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you for listening, as always. Before we begin today, I'd just like to thank you all once again for the way that you received the last series on the life and times of Huey Long. I'm glad you seem to enjoy listening to it just as much as I enjoyed producing it, and I am just as excited to present to you this new series on the Meiji Restoration, so without further ado, let's jump into it. On July 2nd, 1853, an American fleet of warships led by Commodore Matthew Perry arrived in the Bay of Edo, modern Tokyo, the capital of Japan. This singular event was so shocking to the Japanese people that from it commenced over two decades of revolution, reform, revolt, and civil unrest, known collectively as the Meiji Restoration. Previously a feudal backwater on the edges of the modern world, Japan would emerge from the decades of the Meiji Restoration as a modern, centralized nation-state, capable of challenging the empires of the Western world. In this series of episodes, we will explore this tumultuous period of Japanese history. But, in order to properly understand the Meiji Restoration, we must first examine the state of Japanese politics and society prior to the arrival of Commodore Perry in 1853. Our narrative starts all the way back in the year 1600 with the Battle of Sekigahara. This battle pitted the Western Alliance, led by Toyotomi Hideyori, against the Eastern Alliance, led by Tokugawa Ieyasu. Over 160,000 men fought on either side of this battle, making it the largest battle in Japanese history up to that point. The victory of Tokugawa Ieyasu at the Battle of Sekigahara effectively ended the Sengoku Jidai a period of nearly 150 years of near-constant civil war in Japan. Ieyasu's victory allowed him to found the Tokugawa Shogunate, the government that would rule Japan for nearly 250 years of relative peace and stability. How was Ieyasu able to forge such a long-lasting regime from the anarchy of the Warring States period? The system of government devised by Ieyasu has been described, quite paradoxically, as centralized feudalism. To start with, the Tokugawa shogunate was fundamentally divided between the bakufu, or the central government, and the han, or the domains. At the head of the bakufu was the shogun, the military leader of all Japan. At the heads of the hans were the daimyo, or the regional lords. The relationship between the shogun and the daimyo is similar to that between a European monarch and his retainers. The daimyo were responsible for their feudal domains and were allotted a certain degree of autonomy in these regards, but they were nonetheless oath-bound to the shogun. The shogun placed very cumbersome restrictions on the daimyo's autonomy, so as to discourage rebellion. The shogun's permission was required before a daimyo could make a marriage alliance with another clan, or to undertake certain construction projects in his own domain, to give two examples. Cementing the shogun's control over his subjects was the policy of alternate attendance, whereby a daimyo was forced to alternate his years between his own domain and the shogunal capital of Edo. The daimyo class was subdivided between Fudai daimyo, direct vassals of the Tokugawa, and Tozama daimyo, lords who had only submitted to Tokugawa rule after the defeat at Sekigahara. Members of the former category were allotted a number of special privileges, such as being allowed to serve in the Bakufu government and being granted exemptions from alternate attendance, whereas members of the latter category had even more restrictions placed upon their autonomy. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, where was the emperor in this arrangement? Even during the Tokugawa shogunate, 
the emperor was the de jure ruler of all Japan. It was from the emperor that the shogun theoretically derived his authority. But while, in theory, the shoguns ruled by the emperor's grace alone, the shoguns were able to politically sideline the emperors, keeping them sequestered off at their little court in Kyoto, a little world all unto themselves. An important aspect of the Tokugawa shogunate was the policy of Sakoku, or closed country. The Japanese had many encounters with the Europeans during the Sengoku period. European traders introduced to Japan, among other things, firearms and Christianity. Tokugawa Ieyasu, for his part, recognized the threat that these things posed to the long-term stability of his regime, and so he adopted an isolationist foreign policy, which his successors devoutly maintained. Under the Sokoku laws, to attempt to even leave the country was punishable by death. Foreign religions, i.e. Christianity, were banned outright, while international trade was subject to strong state regulations. Trade from other East Asian countries, particularly China, was allowed, and even encouraged to an extent, but trade from European countries was heavily restricted. The only European state with trading privileges in Japan was the Netherlands, and even the Dutch merchants were restricted to the island of Deshima, in the harbor of the western Japanese port city of Nagasaki. This is not to say that other European powers did not attempt to establish trade relations with Japan. The history of the Tokugawa period is full of attempts by the British, Russians, French, and others to trade with Japan, but all were rebuffed. It is difficult to say whether these policies were what saved Japan from falling victim to European colonial ambitions at an earlier time, but it is worth reiterating that the era of the Tokugawa shogunate was one of relative peace and stability in Japan. That is, until 1853, with the arrival of the aforementioned Perry Expedition. On July 2nd, 1853, Commodore Matthew Perry entered Edo Bay with four American warships, containing 61 cannons and a little less than a thousand men total. The Japanese onlookers were astonished at the very sight of these massive vessels, six times the size of the average Japanese ship. One witness reported, quote, Two of the American warships are clad in iron. One is mounted with 30 or 40 cannons, one with 12. The other two ships are mounted with 20 cannons each. They can move about freely without the use of oars, and can come and go with great speed. They are like floating castles, which can move about as they please. End quote. This was actually not the first time that the Americans had attempted to establish contact with Japan. This was the era of manifest destiny. The United States had just expanded its borders to the western coast of the North American continent, and now their ships were traveling across the Pacific Ocean in order to establish trade with the nations of Asia. In 1844, the United States established a commercial treaty with China. Only two years later, an expedition under Captain James Biddle arrived in Edo Bay to establish relations with Japan. He was, of course, rebuffed and told to withdraw, which he politely did. Thus, when the Bukufu was worn via the Dutch, a year in advance of Commodore Perry's expedition, it was not cause for great alarm. There was a critical difference between the two efforts, however. Commodore Perry's expedition, unlike Biddle's, was authorized to use force if deemed necessary. Tensions were high when the Japanese envoy and his interpreter boarded Perry's flagship, the USS Susquehanna. Perry had refused several requests of the Japanese to relocate to Nagasaki in order to have his case heard out. 
Perry remained firmly in place in Edo Bay. In the meantime, the call had gone out to the surrounding daimyo, who dispatched their warriors to the scene. The American ship's cannons were trained on the thousands of well-armored samurai who lined the shore, armed with swords, spears, and antiquated matchlock rifles. Perry relayed his message to the Japanese envoy, that the United States desired to conduct a commercial treaty with Japan. When the envoy once again instructed Perry to travel to Nagasaki, he refused, and then gave the envoy a personal letter, along with an odd gift, a singular white flag. In the letter, Perry threatened to use military force against the Japanese if the Americans' demands were not met. In that event, the white flag, he said, would come in handy, as the Japanese were almost certain to lose. With little choice left, the Japanese envoy agreed to accept the president's letter in a formal ceremony under a hastily constructed pavilion on the beach of the village of Kurihama. The ceremony was rather laborious, with translators having to translate Japanese into Dutch and Dutch into English and back again. Only nine days after his arrival, Perry and his squadron departed. He would give the Bakufu time to mull over the American proposal, but, he warned, when he returned, he would be back with an even bigger fleet, one capable of wiping Edo off the map entirely. Commodore Perry's arrival put the Tokugawa Bakufu in a rather unenviable position. Their options were quite limited. Should they bow to the Americans' demands, or do they try to fight them off in a war that they knew that they were bound to lose? Either way, the result would be a loss of legitimacy for the Bakufu, the legitimacy of which rested on military strength. Uncharacteristically, the Bakufu reached out to its own subjects for advice on how to handle the current crisis, circulating a translated version of the American letter and requesting for advice on how to deal with the current crisis. Perhaps attesting to the Bakufu's desperation, even the untrusted Tozama daimyo were solicited for their advice. Hundreds of letters poured into Edo in the coming weeks. The responses split more or less into two different camps. The majority advised rejecting the Americans' demands outright, even if it would result in war. They had seen what had happened to China at the end of the Opium Wars two decades prior, and had no desire to see Japan become a quasi-colony of the Western powers. Proponents of such a course of action formed the nucleus of the Expel the Barbarians movement. Far fewer suggested accepting the Americans' demands, although these intellectuals were not proposing sitting down and becoming a colony of the United States. They, too, had seen what had happened in China as a result of the Opium Wars, but they reached the opposite conclusion. They saw cooperation with the foreign powers as a temporary and pragmatic measure, whereby Japan could buy itself time to build up its military strength, and then to expel the barbarians from the country by force of arms. Proponents of this course of action formed the nucleus of the Open the Country movement, and, although they were smaller in number, their influence would grow considerably in the coming years. Commodore Perry returned to Edo on February 13, 1854, much earlier than expected. This time, he brought along seven black ships, instead of just four. This time, Perry went to great lengths to impress upon the Japanese that this time, he would not leave without having concluded a treaty. Negotiations began at the beginning of March and lasted for about a month. This time, the Bakufu had ordered its representatives to agree to most American demands. The sole exception was when Perry proposed a commercial treaty on the lines of the one that America had signed with China previously. 
Treaties such as the American-Chinese Treaty forced China into an exploitative trade system known as the Treaty Port System, which resulted, among other things, in a partial loss of sovereignty for China. The Japanese knew this well, and were determined to not share in China's fate, so Perry's proposal was roundly rejected. The only other hang-up the negotiators had was the matter of which specific Japanese ports were to be opened up to American trade. Eventually, the ports of Shimoda and Hakodate were decided upon. The euphemistically named Treaty of Peace and Amity, also known as the Convention of Kanagawa, was signed by representatives of the Tokugawa Bokufu and the United States of America on March 31, 1854. All things considered, both sides were relatively pleased with the results given the circumstances. Japan had managed to avoid the fate of China, and Commodore Perry had, in his own words, quote, opened Japan to the nations of the world, end quote. With his objective having been completed, Perry departed Japan for good that July. He had no idea that he would leave in his wake several decades of political upheaval and civil unrest. The treaty that was signed by Perry, containing as it did no specific provisions for foreign trade, was by no means a permanent solution to the problem that Japan now faced. By that same token, however, the signing of the Perry Treaty did not induce widespread civil unrest the way that it was feared that a full commercial treaty would have. Also, buying the Bakufu some time were events such as the Second Opium War in China and the Crimean War in Russia, which distracted the great powers of the West for the years immediately following 1854. But it would not be long before they would return, and inevitably would demand a more vigorous treaty, and Japan had to be ready for the moment that they did. These interim years were a time of vigorous political debate across Japan. Across the spectrum of political thought was near-unanimous recognition of one basic reality. The old policy of Sakoku isolation as such was no longer feasible. Japan was simply too outmatched technologically to stand a chance against the United States or any other Western nation in a real war. If they were to achieve their hope of holding their own against the so-called barbarians, Japan needed to modernize, and fast. This meant the widespread adoption of Western-style weapons, military tactics, and even political theories to be used in the defense against the Westerners. One Tozama Daimyo summed up his views on the matter with the rather succinct slogan, quote, control the barbarians through barbarian technology, end quote. Before long, advocates of both the expel the barbarians and the open up the country movements were espousing this same sort of rhetoric. A rather telling example of this dynamic can be found in the story of Yoshida Shoin, a young retainer of the Choshu clan, who was quickly becoming one of Japan's foremost public intellectuals. Yoshida was somewhat of a child prodigy, he attended college at the age of eight years old and began to give lectures at said college at the age of nine. He was acutely aware of the threat posed to Japan by the West. In 1848, five whole years before the Perry expedition, he had written to the shogun to warn him of this danger. His words seemed to have gone unheeded. Yoshida was in Edo to bear witness to Perry's first arrival in 1853. At that time, he was 23 years old and rather hot-headed. He proposed to a group of his students that they try to fight the foreigners with their swords. He was quickly laughed out of the room. But when Perry returned in 1854, Yoshida had a new idea. He was very active in the public debate spurred on by the Perry expedition, and he had become convinced that the most efficacious 
course of action was to control the barbarians through barbarian technology. He conspired with a fellow student, Kaneko Shikanosuke, to stow away aboard Perry's ship to travel to the United States, where he would, in his words, investigate the situation in their country. On April 25, 1854, shortly after the signing of the Convention of Kanagawa, Yoshida approached an American Marine with a letter requesting to be allowed aboard his ship. He was refused entry. Later, under the cover of night, Yoshida, along with his accomplice, approached Perry's flagship in a wooden rowboat. As the two climbed up the side of the ship, they were spotted by American sailors who raised the alarm. Once caught, the two Japanese men begged to be allowed aboard, telling Perry that, under the current law, attempting to leave Japan carried with it stiff penalties, including death. Perry was well aware of this, but he wasn't about to jeopardize his treaty by so flagrantly defying the law of Japan. He turned in Yoshida and Kaneko to the Tokugawa authorities on the shore. Perry was rather impressed by their bravado, and made a note of them in his official report back home, although he never really bothered to learn either of their names. Both Yoshida and Kaneko managed to avoid the death penalty, and were sentenced to imprisonment. Kaneko died in prison after a few months, but Yoshida lived and continued to read and write industriously. It was these writings, which were produced in prison, that, in part, made Yoshida Shoin into one of the most prominent intellectuals of the Expel the Barbarians movement. Although the Bakufu was still reluctant to end the policy of seclusion, many in government agreed with the logic of controlling the barbarians through their own technology, and as such, they began to modernize Japan's military. This is evidenced by the 1855 founding of the Nagasaki Naval Academy. Here, 160 samurai, representing both the Fudai and Tozama domains, as well as the Tokugawa themselves, were instructed in navigation, shipbuilding, surveying, mathematics, engineering, and gunnery by 22 Dutch naval officers for the express purpose of bringing Japan's navy up to modern European standards. The Dutch government even granted Japan its first modern naval vessel, the Soimbing, rechristened the Kanrin Maru. This sort of strain of thought was not new in Japanese political and intellectual circles. Two decades earlier, a retainer of the Mito clan, Aizawa Seishisai, published his massively influential work, The New Theses. In this document, Aizawa lays out arguments for adopting Western-style weapons and technology to fight against the Westerners, should they arrive on force in Japanese shores. His New Theses advocated for joy, which is to say, expelling the barbarians, presaging the Expel the Barbarians movement that would emerge in the wake of the Perry Expedition a few years later. Crucially, Aizawa also had some other ideas about how Japan could defend itself against the West. He believed that the Japanese people, having grown weak after centuries of peace, needed a central figure to rally behind in order to become strong once again. That figure would not be the Shogun, but rather the Emperor. Aizawa was one of the earliest advocates of the abolition of the shogunate and the return to absolute imperial rule. It was thanks to his work that the concept of expel the barbarians, or joy, and revere the emperor, Sono, would be merged into one, revere the emperor and expel the barbarians, in Japanese, Sono Joy. 
Despite the widespread consensus that opening the country was more or less inevitable, the Bakufu remained quite reluctant to end the policy of seclusion. Seclusion, it must be remembered, had brought Japan 250 years of peace and stability, or so they believed. To end it now ran the risk of fundamentally altering the very structure of Japanese society and government. One author likened it to removing the pillars from the foundation of a building. Secondly, to manage such a monumental project, the Bakufu needed a vigorous and dynamic leader, and thus far none existed. The current shogun, Tokugawa Iesada, was a feeble and sickly man. He suffered from a speech impediment and was even unable to sit upright for more than 30 minutes at a time. Mentally, Iesada is described by contemporaries as being, quote, a man of marked discretion, extreme reticence, and gentle nature, end quote. Iesada had come to power only after his father, the far more capable Tokugawa Ieyoshi, died of a stroke only one month after Commodore Perry's arrival in Edo Bay. The fact that Iesada was unfit to rule was a fact that was widely acknowledged. Despite the fact that he was only in his late 20s, the members of his court scrambled to find an heir for the childless and ailing shogun. Under normal circumstances, Tokugawa Yoshitomi would have been made heir without any big to-do, considering the fact that he had the closest blood relation to the current shogun. However, the laws of succession in the Tokugawa shogunate did not specify that the heir had to be the closest blood relative. A political faction within the Bakufu, led by Tokugawa Nariaki, advocated for the candidacy of Nariaki's son, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, also known as KK. The practical difference between Yoshinobu and Yoshitomi was that Yoshitomi, at the time of Iesada's death in 1858, was only 12 years old, whereas Yoshinobu was already a fully grown man of 21 years. Yoshinobu's supporters argued that Yoshinobu was capable of providing the kind of leadership that the Bakufu needed so desperately in this trying time. But, the power struggle between the different factions of the shogunate supporting Yoshitomi and Yoshinobu went deeper than a mere dispute over succession laws. Whichever faction won this power struggle would be effectively able to control the shogun and therefore enact their own political agendas. Either candidate had powerful men supporting them, each with opposing ideas on politics, specifically on foreign policy. As previously mentioned, the pro-Yoshinobu faction was headed by Tokugawa Nariaki, his father. Nariaki has been described by historians as a nationalist, although it is worth mentioning that the Japanese nation as such did not really exist during this period, so it may be more accurate to call him a proto-nationalist. In his time, Nariaki was known as Reko, which translated can alternatively mean either extreme lord, or patriotic lord. In addition to carrying the Tokugawa surname, Nariaki had acquired a deal of expertise in government matters, thanks to his tenure as advisor for maritime defense under shogun Tokugawa Ieyoshi. In his capacity as the shogun's advisor, he warned Ieyoshi of the, quote, intention of the foreign barbarians to propagate Christianity, to trick the people of our sacred land, conducting trade with us, pillaging our wealth, impoverishing our people, and finally, taking our country by military force, end quote. When Commodore Perry's squadron arrived in Edo Bay, Nariaki lobbied hard for the shogun to order an attack on the American vessels, regardless of the consequences, but he did not have his way. 
It is safe to say that, in terms of foreign policy, Nariaki's stance fell squarely into the expelled barbarians camp. Nariaki firmly opposed any further diplomatic dealings with the Western powers, even the Dutch, and advocated for a military regeneration of Japanese society so as to prepare for the inevitable military confrontation between the West and Japan. He was confident that, even if Japan was defeated in the coming war, said defeat would galvanize the Japanese people, and that they would rally to defeat the Westerners eventually. The de facto leader of the pro-Yoshitomi faction was Ie Naosuke, the Fudai Daimyo of Hikone. Ie's contemporaries were not quite as kind to him as they were to his counterpart Nariaki. Ie has been described by one source as, quote, ignorant and stupid, end quote. A slightly more charitable account of his personality was written by Tokugawa Yoshinobu, whose candidacy for the shogun Ie opposed. Yoshinobu wrote that Ie was, quote, decisive, yet lacking in intellect. He was somewhat arrogant in his demeanor and seemed to look down on people, end quote. Ie's views on foreign policy greatly contrasted with Nariaki's. However, don't misunderstand. Ie was by no means a foreign bootlicker. Like almost all other Japanese people at the time, Ie despised the arrogant foreigners just as much as everyone else. In his heart of hearts, Ie would have wanted nothing more than to expel the barbarians. However, Ie was a pragmatist. He, like many others, realized that a military confrontation with the United States would be suicidal. Thus, he advocated for continuing to deal diplomatically with the United States and opening up the country, if only so that Japan could harness the secrets of the West and then turn them against them. Events between 1854 and 1858 only served to further support the notion that the opening of Japan was an inevitability. The British concluded a treaty with Japan along similar lines to the American treaty mere months after it was signed. In 1857, the Netherlands followed suit, requesting a rearrangement of the terms of the long-standing Deshima Agreement. Under the old policies of isolation, Dutch trade, as previously mentioned, was subject to severe restrictions. The number of ships coming in every year was limited to one, sometimes two. Certain materials were forbidden to be traded, and there was an annual limit on the value of traded items. Per the terms of the new Dutch-Japanese treaty, the majority of these restrictions were lifted. That same year, a Russian mission arrived at Nagasaki also requesting a treaty, which they were granted. The signing of these two further treaties was perhaps what emboldened Townsend Harris, the American consul in Japan, to approach the Bakufu to request a new treaty. The moment many in Japan had dreaded had arrived. Harris negotiated with Hota Masayoshi, who was the head of the Tokugawa Council of Elders, making him, at the time, the second most powerful man in the Bakufu, next to the shogun himself. Hota's opening move was to offer Harris a similar deal to the one that had been struck with the Netherlands. Harris rejected this outright. He demanded less restrictions on trade, more open trading ports, and the right to maintain a diplomatic outpost in Edo. While Harris ultimately succeeded in getting most of what he wanted, he and Hota wrangled back and forth on a few points of contention, namely on the specific ports which were to be opened and in which city the Americans' permanent diplomatic mission was to be placed. Negotiations stalled a few times, at which point Harris, growing increasingly agitated, ominously threatened Hota by telling him that he was determined to get his treaty, and that there was a difference between a treaty signed of one's free will 
and a treaty signed when one side has a fleet of warships on standby. In May of 1858, the Second Opium War between Britain and France on one side and the Qing Dynasty of China on the other concluded. Townsend Harris, hoping to expedite the negotiation process, warned Hota that now that British and French naval squadrons were no longer needed in China, it would not be long before they too streamed into Japanese harbors, looking for new treaties, and surely the terms of the British and French would be just as stiff as those of the Americans. The political pressure on the Bakufu only continued to mount. The final straw came in April, when negotiations between Hota and Harris stalled once again. Harris threatened to travel to Kyoto to present his proposal directly to the emperor for his approval. The very notion of a foreigner entering the ancient imperial capital was unthinkable, to say nothing of the inevitable popular backlash that such an action would result in. The threat worked, and an anxious Hota agreed to Harris's terms. However, either way, the approval of the emperor was necessary for the treaty. The thing is, Emperor Konmei and his court were, given the fact that they were largely closed off from the rest of the world, poorly informed on matters of politics and incredibly xenophobic to boot. Tokugawa Nariaki sought to take advantage of this to block the approval of the treaty. In advance of Hota's arrival at Kyoto, he sent a series of messages to the imperial court, where he, as a member of the Tokugawa clan, had some connections. The court did not deign to give Hota a reply until four months later, at which point they did not grant their approval, but instructed him to consult the daimyos once again. Having failed in his mission to secure a treaty with the United States, Hota resigned in disgrace. Unbeknownst to Tokugawa Nariaki, this maneuver would play right into the hands of his greatest adversary, Ie Naosuke. Hota's position as the head of the Grand Council of Elders was filled by Ie, who was granted the honorific title of Tairo, or Great Leader. Ie's first order of business, once in power, was to finally sign the Harris Treaty. The terms of the final treaty were as follows. In addition to the already opened ports of Shimoda and Hakodate, four new ports were to be opened to American trade in the next two years, Kanagawa, Nagasaki, Hyogo, and Niigata. There was to be a permanent American diplomatic presence in the cities of Edo and Osaka. In all of these cities, the Americans were to be granted the rights to build their own settlements, including a provision for the construction of Christian churches. Additionally, the Americans were granted the right of extraterritoriality, meaning that American subjects on Japanese soil would not be subjected to Japanese law, but American law instead. The terms of this treaty seemed all too similar to those of the so-called unequal treaties imposed on China at the end of the Opium Wars. And while the terms of the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, as it was officially called, were far from ideal, Ie was able to pressure Emperor Kome into granting his approval to it, as he was able to convince him that he had no other recourse. As a result of the Treaty of Amity and Commerce, Japan was now inexorably drawn into the Western colonial economic system. The risks were high. As author W.G. Beasley wrote, there were two real dangers that would result in Japan being turned into a colony or a protectorate of the Western powers. The first, more optimistic scenario, was that if the Japanese economy was able to adjust smoothly and the country was to be integrated into the global economy, it would become a sort of lesser partner to the Western powers and effectively relegated to a semi-colonial status, much like China had. The other, 
far more likely scenario was that if the signing of this treaty provoked a hostile political reaction in Japan, there was a danger that the Western powers might launch a military intervention in the country so as to protect their economic interests, which would ultimately result in Japan becoming a protectorate or colony of the Western powers. Still, Ienosuke was confident that he had acted in Japan's best interests. He firmly believed that he was buying Japan enough time to build up its economic and military strength in preparation for the inevitable military conflict between itself and the West. Ie soon moved to consolidate his power within the Bakufu. On August 14th, the ailing shogun, Tokugawa Iesada, finally died. The reported cause of death was heart failure induced by beriberi, a disease caused by vitamin B1 deficiency. Understandably, rumors abounded that he had actually been poisoned. Ie's position as Tyro ensured that he was able to secure the shogunate for his preferred candidate, Tokugawa Yoshitomi, who soon after became known as Tokugawa Iemochi. Seeing as how the new shogun was only 12 years old, Ienosuke effectively became his regent, ruling in his stead until he reached the age of majority. With the full power of the shogunate behind his back, Ie initiated the first stage in what would become known as the Great Purge of Ansei, so-called for the Japanese calendar year in which it took place. Ansei, ironically, means tranquil government. Ie first had his strongest political opponents arrested and placed under house arrest. Among others, this group included Tokugawa Nariaki and Tokugawa Yoshinobu. For these actions, Ienosuke was censored by the imperial court at Kyoto, but this would not be enough to stop him. Before long, he initiated the second phase of the Ansei Purge. This time, lower-ranking nobles, who were partisans of the Sonojoi movement, were hunted down and arrested en masse in Kyoto, then were transferred to Edo in cages. Anyone determined to pose a challenge to the Tokugawa Bakufu was caught up in the purge. A number of public intellectuals who espoused the Sonojoi ideology were arrested and beheaded like common criminals. Among those arrested and executed was Yoshida Shoin, the man who had, only four years earlier, attempted to stow away aboard Commodore Perry's flagship. He was only 29 years old. Those deemed to not pose as much of a threat were merely placed under house arrest, forced into early retirement, or forced to enter the Buddhist clergy. While the Ansei Purge was of a very wide scope, over a hundred people were arrested in total, including members of the imperial court, it would seem that Ienosuke underestimated the backlash that his actions would elicit. For some time now, the current of Sono, expel the barbarians, and Joy, revere the emperor, had been merging. Simultaneously, most Japanese people's instinctual revulsion towards the barbarians led them to rally around the emperor, and their reverence of the extremely xenophobic emperor led them to despise the barbarians even more. Thus, the ideas of Sono and Joy became merged into one coherent ideology, Sono Joy, revered the emperor, expelled the barbarians. There was a groundswell of support for the Sono Joy movements among lower-class samurai, some came from Tokugawa and Fudai domains, as evidenced by Tokugawa Nariaki, but most came from Tozama domains, such as Tosa, Choshu, and Satsuma. Long having been sidelined from politics for most of the shogunate's history, they saw their chance when the Bakufu effectively democratized the Han system by soliciting all the domains for their advice on how to deal with the crisis. Many lower-class samurai left their masters to congregate with other like-minded samurai in the cities of Kyoto and Edo. By abandoning their masters, they became ronin, 
but whereas the term ronin previously referred to a lordless samurai, the term now took on new meaning. These new ronin were politicized to a degree that their predecessors had not been. These new ronin were political renegades, outlaws who intentionally left the service of their lord. The new ronin were not even all members of the samurai class. Some were farmers, others were merchants, but what bound them together was the ideology of sono joy. Over time, a new identity emerged for this group, the Ishin Shishi, or simply the Shishi. The late Yoshida Shoin defined the Ishin Shishi as, quote, a patriot of high aspiration, a person who in times of peace reads books, studies moral teachings, discusses government policy, and considers the advantages and disadvantages of the past and presence. But, in times of war, one who implements his everyday aspirations for the sake of the country, end quote. From the outset, the Ishin Shishi were very openly critical of the Bakufu. The shogun acted on behalf of the emperor, and since he had failed in his moral duty to expel the barbarians, he had forfeited the right to his power. For the time being, however, most Ishin Shishi did not openly call for an end of the Bakufu. However, future events would eventually radicalize them to that point. The first such event was the signing of the Harris Treaty. Details about the treaty were not kept secret. In fact, the Bakufu openly circulated copies of the treaty throughout the domains. Anyone with basic political literacy could understand the terms of the treaty and the implications that it held for the country. The Ansei Purge, rather than exercising all Sonojoi thought from Japanese society, only served to further galvanize it. Men such as Yoshida Shoin and Tokugawa Nariaki, who died under house arrest, became martyrs, and Ie Naosuke came to be despised as a tyrant. The tyrannical reign of Ie Naosuke lasted only 20 months before it met a violent end. On March 23rd, a group of 18 Shishi met at a tavern in Edo. All but one of them were former retainers of the Mito domain, Tokugawa Nariaki's old domain. The last man hailed from the Satsuma domain. Each of them had quit the service of their daimyo and become ronin so as not to implicate their lords in what they were about to do the next day. The manifesto written and signed by the 18 men very clearly outlines the reasons for their actions. Ie Naosuke was guilty of sacrificing Japan's national honor by signing treaties with the foreigners against the will of the emperor. What's more, they had dishonored their former lord, Tokugawa Nariaki, by imprisoning him under false charges. Quote, Therefore, we have consecrated ourselves to be the instruments of heaven to punish this wicked man, and we have taken on ourselves the duty of ending a serious evil by killing this atrocious autocrat. End quote. The next day was an important spring festival in Japanese society. Ie Naosuke was among the many daimyo invited to the shogun's residence at Edo Castle to partake in the festivities. Ie and his sixty men entourage entered the castle from the Sakura Damon a gate on the south side of the castle. That day, a ferocious snowstorm struck the area. Ie's bodyguards sheathed their swords and protective holders to protect them from the snow, thus making them harder to unsheath. The 18 ronin mingled amongst the civilian crowd, who had turned out to watch the procession. Suddenly, right as Ie passed in front of them, one of the assassins threw off his hat and slashed two of Ie's bodyguards across the chest. After this, Another shot a pistol into the planikin Ie was being carried upon. The shot struck him in the neck and paralyzed him. A fierce melee ensued as Ie's remaining bodyguards confronted the assassins. In the midst of the pandemonium, another assassin, the only man from Satsuma, 
Aimura Jisemon, charged the palanikin, dragged Ie from it, severed his head, and raised it aloft, declaring that he had just killed the hated tyrant Ie Naosuke. All assassins but one managed to flee the scene. Arimura, along with two of his mortally wounded companions, then committed seppuku, ritual self-disembowelment. All but two of the assassins were executed in the wave of arrests that followed, but they had accomplished their goal. The tyrant, Ie Naosuke, was dead. And it is with that that I will end things for today. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks to watch the 18 Assassins' brazen action sets off a decade of terrorism and war, the likes of which Japan had not seen since the days of the Sengoku Jedi, 250 years earlier. If you like this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast listening platform you use in order to help the show reach a wider audience. If you have questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Or, alternatively, contact me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which will be in the description of this episode. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to help contribute to keeping the show running, then I'd encourage you to check out the show's Patreon page and the eBay store, where I have listed a number of books for sale. Anyway, I'd like to take this opportunity to once again thank you for listening. This has been the Historia Dramatica podcast, and I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.